0: I thought I could begin this morning by holding up these two books. This is the Bible. This is Jonathan Edwards. Now, make very clear: these are not coordinate authorities in my life. This is on top. i sorry. And and this is underneath. But I want to make a point about that, namely that. Well, this is absolutely and inherently authoritative. Good, Bruce. I-, I wondered if I was supposed to have that on. I'll just stop here. And
1: All right. This book, okay? All you pastors
0: live in this book. All you lay people live in this book. So what's the point of a book like this? These are, these are the collected sermons, one of their volumes of Edwards. The point is that God has ordained, according to Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, that there be teachers in the church. And it would be chronologically snobbish, as C.S. Lewis says, of us to only listen to teachers of our own generation. And we will become the poorer for it if we only read books in our own century. We must go outside our century or we will become chronological snobs. And Edwards is uh 1703 to 1758, I think, if I remember correctly. So he's 250 years old. So there's a good place to go every now and then. And what you, what you find when you go to the best of God's teachers throughout the centuries is that you find Bible distilled through a holy soul. And there's something very empowering about that. Because frankly, if I ask, now why did God ordain that there be human teachers alongside the Bible? Why didn't he just ordain that everybody go straight to the Bible without a preacher? Why did he ordain that there be pastors and teachers? Isn't the isn't the written word of God sufficient? Why do you need pastors and teachers? And it just seems as though the Lord ordains that this word be fleshed out in various personalities and various speaking types in order that it have an extra punch coming through a Holy Spirit-filled person or writer. as so whatever the reason, I just encourage you to live in this book and then to dip into other books and speakers and do some of them outside your own century. And maybe I'll come back and and quote Edwards again, but I brought him along just to say that he is one of the people that for me has become a Bible mediator, a, a dead teacher that has opened my heart to the Bible again and again. But we will speak from the Bible this morning, not from Edward. So let me bring this up to date on where we are and where we're, where we're going. Last night's point was that God does everything He does with a view to magnifying His glory. So God is radically God centered. And then we asked at the end, is that loving of God to be that way? Is it a loving thing for God to be so self-centered as to always do everything he does to magnify his glory? And we answered the question, yes, it is loving. And we explained it this way, that our highest joy as creatures is to know God and to see his glory and to be caught up into his glory, and to delight in his glory. That's our highest joy. Nothing that he has made, not that beautiful sunshine, not any member of our family, not any degree of health, not any sexual intimacy, not any kind of food, nor friendship, not any kind of success in business or ministry, can measure up to the Joy that there is in knowing Christ. I count everything is lost, Paul said, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, if that's true. To know God and to be with God and to delight in God in his presence, is fullness of joy and his right hand are pleasures forevermore. If that's true. Then for God to be loving, he must continually exalt himself in our lives. He must continually draw us to him and away from those other competing values. He must continually be self-exalting in our presence. So God is the one being, I said, for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the greatest loving act. So the answer is yes. He is loving to be self-exalting. God is the one being who has to be self-exalting to be loving. You can't be that way. You have to be God-exalting to be loving. If you want people to experience their highest joy, which is what love is, you must direct them to the source of their highest joy, not to yourself. So that prayer that was just prayed a minute ago is absolutely right. It's the heartbeat of the Holy Spirit because he came into the world to glorify himself and not John Piper. And if I fail and have you only wondering about my message and not the God that I preach, I fail. Because I haven't been loving. I haven't directed you to the one who can satisfy your soul. So
1: when God says, imitate me. Or when you think, I'm in the image of God, you should not be thinking, God pursues his glory.
0: I will imitate him because I'm in his image and I will pursue my glory. There's a glitch there. And the glitch is this. When God says, I pursue my glory, now imitate me, the way to imitate that is pursue his glory. If God pursues his glory, you should pursue his glory. And then you will be loving the way he is
1: loving. That's the way to clarify last night. Now, here's the implication for this morning. If that's true,
0: if then God is most magnified,
1: most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him, it follows that I should, for His sake, and gloriously
0: also, for my sake, pursue
1: my joy all the time,
0: without exception. So that's the point this morning that I want to try to demonstrate from the Scriptures. It seems to me, and I learned this from C.S. Lewis from that page in... in. Uh, The Weight of Glory. It's a little blue book. It was when I bought it. It's probably got a different color now. Lewis editions are always being republished in different colors. But it was a little blue book of four sermons called The Weight of Glory. I I recommend it. Buy it if you only read the first page of the first sermon. It'll be worth the $6 or $10 or whatever you pay for it. And there he said, our problem is that we are far too easily pleased. Our problem in the Christian church and in the world is not that people are seeking their own pleasure. That is not the problem, pastors. Do not stand up and say that the problem with our worship services is that people are coming here to seek their own pleasure. That's not the problem. The problem is they have stuffed their faces with
1: the white bread of the world so that they're not hungry when they come to worship. You spread a banquet for them, and their bellies are full of television.
0: The problem is not that they come to get pleasure. The problem is that they don't come to get pleasure because they've sought their
1: pleasure everywhere else and found inadequate satisfaction. But they don't know it yet. And we need to awaken them to the fact that the real issue is, are you
0: going to come to this service to eat the bread of heaven? Drink at the fountain of life. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the living water. He who comes to me. I mean, just imagine anybody saying to Jesus, well, we really shouldn't come thirsty, should we? We really shouldn't come hungry, should we? We really shouldn't come to get our souls satisfied in you, should we? That would be very selfish of us, wouldn't it, to come to get our souls satisfied in you? Can you imagine anybody responding to Jesus like that and the look that would come over his face? As though, and we have been taught these kinds of heresies, as though you should come to Jesus to give and not to get. As though you should make him the beneficiary and you the benefactor so that you get the praise
1: and he gets the help. I mean, that is what 1 Peter 4.11 says we should not do. Let him
0: who serve, serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God gets the glory. To him be the dominion forever and ever. The giver gets the glory.
1: Therefore, if you come to God to give, you blaspheme. You come to God as an empty
0: vessel. You come to God desperate. You come to God needy. You come to God bankrupt. And God is the glorious, all-sufficient, gracious giver, and therefore God gets the glory. God gets the praise. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. We are like children, he said, fooling around with drugs and drink and sex. Like children making mud pies in the slums.
1: Because they cannot imagine what a day at the sea is like. What a holiday on the coast is like. That's God. So we have shriveled up in our hearts so much in our preoccupation with secondary, two-bit,
0: low-yield pleasures in the world that our hearts have just grown smaller and smaller and smaller in their capacities for
1: joy until we now justify our own small-heartedness by turning the gospel into a call for duty religion rather
0: than delight religion. We say, oh, Christianity is not about our joy. It's not about our pleasure. It's not about our satisfaction. It's not about a heart explosive with delight in the living God. It's about doing right things and making right decisions and exerting right willpower to get
1: right commandments performed. And we can manage that with small hearts. You can manage a willpower religion
0: with a shriveled up capacity for joy, but you can't manage Christianity that way. Christianity is not a willpower religion. It is not a decisionistic religion. It is a profoundly... Supernatural transforming religion that has to do with the heart and its joy and where it finds its pleasures. And if your capacity for pleasure has shriveled to the point where you can only justify it by turning Christianity into a willpower religion, you better check whether you've got the real thing or not. So here's what I want to do this morning. All kinds of objections arise in people's minds when I go around commanding people to pursue their joy. And here are the, I'll just give you some of the sample objections. And I'm going to try in the 30 minutes or so that I have left to answer these objections biblically. Objection number one. Okay, sounds interesting. Sounds like uh, there's a logical connection here to all this stuff you've said. But really, really now, just be faithful exegetically. Is this taught in the Bible? I mean, is it taught? Is it not just kind of inferred from the Bible, from logical presuppositions, but can you find sentences that say these things in the Bible? We are are a Bible people. That's objection number one. Number two, what about self-denial? Don't you believe Jesus called for self-denial? What happens to the glorious teaching of self-denial and crucifixion of self and mortification? What do you do with those texts? Objection number three aren't you focusing too much on emotion? Isn't this going to lead to emotionalism? Isn't there another way of doing Christianity? What becomes of of commitment and uh, the will and fourth objection? What becomes of the concept of serving God? This doesn't sound like serving God. This doesn't sound like a, a servant and a master. It sounds like something else? What becomes of duty? Do you think duty is a bad thing? I mean, duty in the history of the Christian church has been a glorious thing. What's wrong with duty? And fifth, sounds very self-centered when humans do this. What about God-centeredness? Haven't you shifted? You you said last night that everything should be God-centered and now you're telling us to pursue our joy. How can you keep that from being self-centered? So those are the kinds of objections that my mind raises up and that I would hear. So let me answer them one at a time from the Bible. Objection number one. Does the Bible really teach this?
1: That I am to pursue my joy relentlessly because therein
0: is God most glorified. And if I turn from pursuing my joy I will not be able to worship God as I ought, and I will not be able to love people as I ought. Does the Bible teach that I should pursue my joy? I want to give you four ways that the Bible teaches this. Number one, it teaches this by simply commanding it over
1: and over again. Psalm 37:4. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command, not a suggestion. Don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, don't covet, and delight yourself in the Lord. It's a commandment. Remember
0: one time I was
1: on a platform
0: with a a well-known evangelical speaker who didn't like me giving the
1: topic of the seminar, The Pursuit of Joy. And uh, this person wrote me a note and said, I think we ought to put the accent on obedience, not the pursuit of, of pleasure. And I wrote back and I said, the problem I have with that is it's like saying we should put the accent on fruit, not apples. You understand that? Obedience and the pursuit of joy relate to each other as fruit and apples.
0: Because obedience means doing what God tells you to do. And in Psalm 37.4, God tells you to pursue your pleasure in him. So if you're going to be obedient to Psalm 37.4, you must delight in the
1: Lord. This is not icing on the cake of Christianity. This is Christianity. Not to delight in the Lord is not to be a Christian. Does it make you tremble to come to the end of 1 Corinthians, for example, and read, He who has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That make you tremble, and you say, whoa, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, wait a minute! I thought I was saved by faith, and you're cursed if you don't love Jesus." And the word there is philo. Love him. Love him. Love him. We have really dumbed down the word faith to get converts. We have really evacuated it
0: of its New Testament richness. It includes delight. It includes love. For a person to be saved, they must be born again. And to be born again is to have a new heart with new affections. That's answer number one. We are commanded all over the place. When I say all over the place, I've only given you one text Psalm 32:11. be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous ones. Philippians 4, 6, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Psalm 100, serve the Lord with what? Gladness. This is not an option.
1: Serve the Lord with gladness. If you don't feel it, repent. People always ask me, and this I will
0: talk about tomorrow morning. Always ask me, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, but what if you don't? What if you don't? And my answer is to say, do not say, oh, it doesn't matter because feelings are the caboose on the end of the train and you can let a caboose go and still get the freight there. That's not the answer. The answer is repent and plead with the living God the way David pled. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Pray and pray and pray until it comes. Beat on the doors of heaven until the joy is restored because you are in mortal danger if you don't delight in God. It's
1: not a caboose. It is power. And there are many other texts that command it. Second
0: answer to is it biblical? It is biblical because you see it in the threats of the Bible I read one time from C.S. Lewis that Jeremy Taylor said, God threatens us with terrible things if we will not be happy. And I thought, that's clever, but is it biblical? And then I found it in Deuteronomy 28 47, and I'll read it to you. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness, And gladness of heart, therefore, you will serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and in want of all things. If you will not serve because you did not serve the Lord your God with gladness and joyfulness of heart, you will serve your enemies. That's a threat.
1: God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. So it's true from the threats of the
0: Bible. Thirdly, it is true, given the New Testament teaching about the nature of faith, that we should pursue our joy. I have in mind Hebrews 11, 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For... Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now think about this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then he gives you two things that constitute faith. For he who comes to God must believe first he is. And second, in coming
1: to him, you are rewarded. You must believe that to please him. Now, just 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 work with that in your mind for a moment. Meditate on this for a moment.
0: Think about this, and you'll become a theologian. Just meditate for a moment. Everybody's a theologian. You're either a, a good one or a bad one, a superficial one or a... Or a or a a deeper one. Now, this text says, to please God you must believe,
1: and the two things you must believe are that he is, and when you come, you get reward. If you come to God, not craving the reward of God, you don't please him. And it isn't faith. That's good news. That's really good news. I mean, isn't it good news to have the fountain of the universe
0: command you to come not with buckets of your labor, but with empty vessels to drink at his sufficiency? Isn't that
1: good news? Unless
0: you want to make an impression on God and other people, then it's not good news. If you want to be self-sufficient, if you want to be the benefactor of God, if you want to be seen as anything other than broke, naked, blind, bankrupt, that's bad news. But if you're already broke and naked and blind and empty and thirsty and hungry, that's good news. To be told, God is not pleased by anybody except those who believe who he is and who come to get reward from him and so we should be pursuing our delight in God continually because it pleases him it shows him to be the fountain and us to be empty and thirsty and that's the best of all possible worlds and the fourth way the bible teaches it is by the nature of sin what is sin according to say Jeremiah to, um, I think it's verse 13, where Jeremiah just shakes his head and he says, Be appalled, O heavens! Be shocked! Be utterly dismayed! For my
1: people have committed two great evils!
0: All right, now what's the definition of evil? Here's the next verse. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water.
1: That's the essence of evil. The essence of evil that should cause the universe to be dismayed and
0: shocked when it is performed, is when human beings taste
1: the fountain of living waters in God and say, Mm. no thank you, and turn to money, fame, success, sex, drugs, power, influence, carve out these cisterns
0: Put their mouth to them and they're all broken and they can't hold any
1: water and they spend their whole lives sucking on this dirt. That's evil. That's evil. You see what the problem is in the world? The problem is that, is not that we are hungry or thirsty. It's that we've turned away from the fountain. That's evil. So what is virtue then? Virtue is to wake up by the wonderful
0: grace of the Holy Spirit through regeneration to say,
1: yuck, what is that? I've been eating all my life. Yuck. Yeah! Like, I used this illustration one time that uh, in the dark where the world lives,
0: they go and they find their mistresses in all these various sins and the mistress puts over their head this beautiful brooch. Or, uh, my wife corrected me when I used the illustration. She said a brooch is pinned on the lapel. It's not a brooch. I said, oh, I don't, I don't, whatever these things are that hang at the end of a, of a necklace and it was, it's ebony, it's dark, it's beautiful and, and you're feeling it and it's just, it's smooth, it's shiny. And you wear it, you know, like some people... My my son wears a black shark tooth around his neck sometimes. Oh, it's pretty. And then when you get saved, the light comes on and you see it's a roach. See, that's why I like the word broach. It's not a broach. It's a roach. And I thought it worked so well and got home and my wife said... Broaches don't hang at the end. <laughs> Clear your illustrations with me, please. <laughs> well, they got it. I think they got it anyway. It's a roach. It's, it's just broken cisterns. They hold no water. And to be born again is to wake up to that. It's to flip from TV station to TV station to TV station and not want to stay and want to stay and want to stay. But to say, how can the world live here? How can the world live here when we have seen the living God and we will spend eternity with the God who doesn't just make days like that. But those are very dim reflections of the kind of God he is with whom we will be spending eternity forever. And so. It is sin to turn away from the fountain, and it is virtue to pursue your joy, not in the broken cisterns, but in the fountain of living waters all your life. So there's my answer to objection number one. And if I spend that much time on each of them, I won't get done. But what I don't get done, I'll finish tonight, so we won't worry about the time, and I'll stop on time. Objection number two. What about self-denial, John? Don't you know that Jesus said in Mark 8:35 whoever would save his life will lose it. It sounds to us. I mean this teaching just sounds like you don't believe that or you minimize self-denial somehow or you it doesn't really have a place in your system which makes me think that your system is a little bit out of whack here. It's not quite biblical at the point of Mark 8:35. Unless you take up your cross, unless you deny yourself, you can't be my disciple. And you're you
1: saying always to be a disciple, you must be pursuing self-gratification, the joy of your own self.
0: My answer to that objection, as with most objections, is read on, read on in the Bible. And the rest of the verse says, after it says, whoever would save his life will lose it, it says, And whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels
1: will save it. Now, what's the logic here? How is Jesus arguing? How is he moving them? How is he wooing them? Isn't he wooing them by saying, you don't want to lose your life? Whatever you do, you don't want to lose your life. That's the bottom line argument. Don't lose your life. Keep wanting
0: life. Want life. Want life. Want life so much you will die to get life. Want life so much you will leave husbands and wives and children to go to the hospital. Or you will leave everything to go to the mission field. Or you will leave anything to have life. Really want life. In other words... Jesus' doctrine of self-denial is not a call to ultimate self-denial.
1: That is, it is not a call to choose hell in order to have heaven. That's a contradiction. It's not required of you anywhere in the Bible to choose hell to have
0: heaven. The Puritans, some of them, were wrong to ask candidates for ordination, are you willing to be damned for the glory of Jesus? Edwards argued against that question with all his might because it put ordinance in an absolutely unbiblical position to contemplate a reality and a God who does not exist. Namely, a God who would require of us damnation in order to go to heaven. Anybody who loves the glory of God so much could never contemplate being damned because God would never damn somebody who loves his glory that much. It put them in an impossible position, nor are you ever asked to be in that position. On the contrary, you are over and over again given models of another sort. For example, in Matthew 13, there's a one-verse parable, and it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven... Is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And he covers it over, and then here's the key phrase. From his joy, he
1: goes and sells what? Everything he has. That's self denial. That's the meaning of self
0: denial. His wedding ring, his car, his house, his computer, his library, his real estate, all of his portfolio is gone to get this treasure. Who is Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He sells everything. And so when Jesus says, unless you would take up your cross and deny yourself, you can't be my disciple. Or in Luke 14, he who does not renounce everything that he has cannot be my disciple. He then follows it with, and if he follows me, he will have reward in heaven. says that to the rich young ruler. Or, do you remember what he said to Peter? After talking to the rich young ruler, he turns the rich young ruler away. And in Mark 10, 28 to 31, the disciples say, well, who then can be saved? And he says, well, with God, he says, the rich man is getting saved as the rich man is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And they just... That blows their minds because they thought riches was a sign of blessing. And he says, no, it's in the way. You've got to strip down, be simple, wartime lifestyle, or it's going to be very, very hard if you get into the kingdom of heaven. And they are boggled and they say, well, who can be saved? And he says, with man it's impossible,
1: but with God all things are possible. And then Peter pipes up and he says, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. And I think Jesus hears in Peter's words a little bit of self pity, a little bit of sacrifice. We sacrifice. And so, how does he respond to Peter? You remember what he says? He says, Peter, nobody has left houses or lands.
0: Or brothers, or sisters, or children, for my sake and the gospel, who will not receive back in this
1: life houses and lands, and brothers and sisters and mothers with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Get off this sacrifice kick. You see the point? It is no sacrifice to follow. me. Now, I stand here as a very healthy, I
0: think, 53-year-old uh, who's never known very much suffering. A few key points in my life have been hard. And so I find myself fearing that I speak with a little bit of inauthenticity when I say things like this. So what I've done is I've read sufferers to see if they talk like this.
1: And you know what I find? Is that those who have suffered most talk in most hedonistic terms. You read missionary biographies
0: mainly. That's where you find it. Read Hudson Taylor. Read David Livingston. Both of them, incidentally, it's not incidental, Interestingly, both of them came to the end of their lives after losing Hudson Taylor, losing two wives, walking through
1: unbelievable suffering. And he wrote in his spiritual autobiography, I never made a sacrifice. What does he mean? Of course, he made sacrifices. Of course, he denied
0: himself. It cost him tremendously. What he meant was the doctrine of self-denial in the Christian life means let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever.
1: Let's go to China where life is to be found. Where joy is to be found. Yes, pain. Yes, pain,
0: pain, pain. The Calvary road is a painful road. But did you read the lyrics in How Great Thou Art?
1: Did you see the word in the second verse, third line? On the cross, my burdens. Next word. Say it again. I don't think most of you sang that song. Or didn't really feel the force of it when you sang it. My burdens gladly bearing. My God, my God. Can you handle that? The cross is the most exquisite form of torture anybody has ever developed. Three hours of unbelievable agony, not to mention what led up to it. Did, did the songwriter make a mistake? My burden gladly bearing? Or is there a profound thing about suffering in obedience to the Father? Hebrews 12.3 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So, I believe in self-denial. I believe in denying myself tin to have
0: gold. I believe in denying myself sand so that I can stand on a rock. I believe in denying myself brackish water so that I can have the wine of heaven. I do not
1: believe in ultimate self-denial. I believe in biblical self-denial. Well, that's my answer to objection number two. Maybe we have time for one more. What about emotions? Isn't, Isn't
0: this call to pursue your pleasure? And your delight and your satisfaction in God, just way too emotional. I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it elevate emotions
1: to a level where they don't belong? I remember in college reading, uh, Situation Ethics by Joseph Fletcher. It was a bad book,
0: and one of the arguments he made that many evangelicals buy, because there's a partial truth in it, is that love
1: cannot be an emotion because it is commanded in the Bible, and you probably have in this church library a book called Love's a Choice, popular evangelical book. Well, that's true. It's about 30% of the truth. Not the whole truth, and it's not the main truth. Love is more than a choice. And the argument that Fletcher used, I can remember. I was a junior at at Wheaton College. I remember the room I was sitting in when I read it in, in Blanchard Hall 1967 and I read that it cannot be an emotion because it is commanded
0: assumption you don't can't command the emotions because you don't have immediate control over them but you can command decisions because you have immediate control over them
1: something did not i didn't know much theology when i was 19 or whatever i was in
0: 1967 uh 21 20 or 21. Uh, i didn't know much but i had grown up in a christian home and been saturated with the bible from my dad and the wonderful thing about lay people who are not theologians but are saturated with the bible is they can smell bad doctrine before they can explain bad doctrine. That's good. Which is why many lay people are way out in front of high-class, educated, liberal theologians, because they have a better nose. They can smell bad doctrine. They can't They can't say it. They just kind of back off from it, which is so wonderful. They gravitate towards a church where it smells better. Well, what smelled bad, I now understand to be an absolutely wrong biblical presupposition. It's not true that the Bible does not command emotions. It commands emotions everywhere. I'll give you a few examples. Joy is commanded. Philippians 4, 6, rejoice in the Lord. Hope is commanded. Psalm 42, why are you downcast on my soul and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. Fear is commanded. Luke 12, don't fear those who after they kill the body have nothing they can do. Fear him who can cast
1: both soul and body into hell. Weep. And it doesn't mean be a hypocrite. Desire is commanded. 1 Peter 2
0: 2. Earnestly desire the sincere spiritual milk of the word. Tenderheartedness is commanded. Ephesians 4 32. Be kind to one another, tender hearted. Brokenness and contrition and tears are commanded. James 4 9. Be wretched, mourn and weep, oh you double minded. Gratitude is commanded. Ephesians 5 20. Be thankful for everything. Everywhere the emotions are commanded. All of those are emotions. Those are not decisions. You cannot decide to be thankful. You can decide like a child who had just received for Christmas a pair of black socks from his grandmother instead of the fiery red engine that he wanted. You can obey the command from your mother, Johnny, say thank you to your grandmother. Thank you. Thank you for my black socks. But you cannot. That child can say, thank you for my black socks. He cannot feel gratitude
1: if he doesn't feel gratitude. But he is commanded to feel gratitude to God. God
0: has the right to, to to command you to feel what you ought to feel, whether you can feel it or not, because of your deadness. That's why I'm a Calvinist. That's the essence of Calvinism. You ever wondered what's the difference between a Calvinist and an Arminian? Is that God has a right to command dead people to do things only living people can do. You ought to be alive. You ought to love God. You ought to be thankful to God. You ought to delight in God. If you don't, because you're dead, that does not get you off the hook from God's commandments. The commandments are everywhere. And therefore, I do not buy the argument from Joseph Fletcher that God cannot command the emotions or that love is not an emotion. Love is very much an emotion and a choice. And therefore, I don't think I'm making too much out of emotions and I'm going to stop here and pick it up tonight. And we'll let we'll let the first part of tonight be finishing the last two objections. They'll go fairly quickly and then we'll move into the question. If it's right to pursue my joy. Is that a loving thing among people? I've tried to make a case it's a loving, it's good, it's loving towards God and it's loving from God to us. The vertical hedonism is right and loving. But when I do something nice for you to make me happy, is that love? That's what we'll talk about after we finish this morning's message tonight. Let me pray and we can be about our business now. Father in heaven, I thank you so much For the glorious gospel command that we are to come to you as empty vessels, hungry and thirsty, offering you nothing and getting everything from you so that you are the benefactor and we are the beneficiary and you get the glory of being all sufficient and we get the pleasure and the joy and the benefit of grace. Oh, God, grant that you would magnify yourself in these things
1: as we wrestle with them and as they become more and more real in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.